Please open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We are continuing our study of 1 Timothy. I will preach a Christmas message on Christmas morning, but our text this morning will take us right to Christmas, and I think we'll see that uh, as we study it and think about it this week. Uh, We're going to work our way through verse 1 through verse 7 of chapter 2. I know we started this a couple weeks ago, and I'm going to finish those set of verses because they all hang together, and Paul is driving us somewhere. But before we dive into the study of God's Word to hear from the Word, let's pray to the Lord and ask for His blessing on us, shall we? Father in heaven, this is Your Word. We pray that by your Spirit working within us, that we will find it a delight to the eyes and life for our soul. That by it, we will be wounded, and by it, through your mercy, we will be healed as we are pointed afresh and see afresh your holiness, your justice our sin, and your mercy in Christ Jesus. Father, you have been kind to us. Thank you for your word. Grant us grace now to us as we study it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. In early April of 1970, Apollo 13 launched... Many of you, some of you might remember it. I just want to say for the record, I don't remember it, all right? I was not there. But in 1970, early April, Apollo 13 launches. In the preparation leading up to it, one of the oxygen tanks, a tank primarily uh, servicing and meant to uh, help carry the, the, the load of oxygen, it, um, it had been dropped Initial inspection of it didn't turn up any problems visually on the surface. Running some tests, it did create an issue, and uh, they thought they were able to fix that problem by heating the tank significantly and burning off the remaining oxygen inside, and they thought that the problem had been solved and fixed issue is when they heated it up, internally there were circuits and cables and uh, the wiring there, the plastic off that wiring pretty much was melted. But all of this was hidden, unseen to the naked eye, unseen to the visual inspection on the surfaces. It was unknown. Many of you know the story. They loaded it onto, uh, attached it to the uh, Apollo 13 rocket system. Everything seemed to be going well. For the first 56 hours, it was considered one of the smoothest takeoffs and flights of the Apollo program. Everything seemed to be going perfect. In fact, they had just finished um, a, a, a live TV broadcast with the astronauts on board of Apollo 13. They had told everyone how wonderful things were going, how the, the greatest problem they were dealing with was trying to adjust to weightlessness. And they signed off. And less t- than 10 minutes later, they heard an explosion. Looking at one another realizing no one knew exactly what was happening. And then those famous words get broadcast. Houston, we have had a problem. 
all because of a problem that didn't, that was there, a serious issue. But the visual inspection didn't yield any results. I think there is something of that that we see going on in the church in Ephesus that Paul is writing to. He's writing to Timothy, who is a pastor here in this church in Ephesus. And as Timothy is pastoring this church, you may remember very early in chapter 1, as we were looking through, the very first thing Paul talks about to Timothy is a is about Timothy's responsibility to protect the people of God by silencing certain teachers who were teaching God's people. They, were, they themselves were part of the church, apparently. These were religious teachers. They were engaged in teaching God's people certain things, and it was causing people to be led astray. Part of that teaching, part of the, the upshot of that teaching, it appears, is that they were giving the impression that this people who were there in Ephesus, God's people, these, these were a special, elite, spiritual people. That is why they were, they, they were saved. That is why God loved them. That is why they had these special privileges with God. But the reason they had a standing with God is because they were, in some way, whether it was because of their nationality because of their class, that they were somehow, in God's eyes, special and loved above other people. The upshot of this teaching appears to be that the church there in Ephesus was viewing themselves, or at least beginning to view themselves increasingly as superior to the ones around them, superior to the people around them, The effect may have been, probably was, that they cared less and less about others, tried less and less to see that others would come to know Jesus as well. Because if God loved them peculiarly, if if God had loved them because they themselves were, whether through their own righteousness or through their own nationality, because they were Jews or associated with Judaism, or because of their own abiding by the law, that they were somehow special, then that absolved them from any responsibility to reach or to care for anyone else. Because if God did not love them, why should they? This kind of thinking is still very much present with us. It was present in 19th century churches when white churches drove out black Christians because they did not want them in their church. Very much present today when we still, professing Christians will still deny uh, that God's love is uh, available to people of different ethnicity or nationality or tongue or language. It is on display when we as Christians may believe, and maybe not really believe it, but we, we act as if we believe that God's love is peculiar to those who belong to a certain political party and denied to those who may not be of that political persuasion. It is on display when we become so self-focused in our lives, on our own families, on our own, even our own churches or ministries, our own wants, our own activities, our own needs, 
And we lose sight of the eternal weight of the souls that are around us. And so it is this mindset that even as Paul in chapter 2, we talked about last time, chapter 2, Paul is addressing the worship of the church. So even as he is addressing the worship of the church, and even as he is addressing prayer in the public worship of God's church, there is something else that is going on behind the scenes. So even as prayer is the, the topic that he is discussing, or it is the context of the topic, he, there is something else that's driving Paul, and prayer becomes the, the wedge by which Paul is trying to get the people in Ephesus and to arm Timothy with truth, to see that that kind of teaching, that kind of living, that kind of self-focused isn't just not right, it's harmful. It goes against everything we see, not only in Scripture, it goes against everything we see in the heart of God himself. And so we saw two weeks ago this opening command of Paul to pray for the people there in Ephesus, to pray, for, to pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. Verse 1, Therefore I exhort first of all that, there's four kinds of prayers, supplications and prayers, intercessions and giving of thanks be made for all men. And here's two classes of people that he tells us we're to be regularly praying for, for kings and, who all, and all who are in authority. There's this command to pray for All these people with all kinds of prayer. And he goes on that the goal of this prayer is that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Is the aim of our prayer for others is and we, we talked about last time that it wasn't just so that we could have peaceful and comfortable lives. That's not Paul's aim here. His aim is that Christians, the people who are following after Christ, may live, may live out their faith in such a way that they are free to, to worship Christ privately and to speak and testify of Him publicly. That's the twin goal. That is, He is interested in Christianity, this faith that we have, not being merely held privately and tightly in the comfort or in the privacy of our own homes. This is meant to be public and known to the world. In all godliness, in all reverence. That's why he tells us to pray for all people. This may seem obvious to us, but Paul has to justify this command. Because in Ephesus, apparently, this was anything but obvious. Here was a church that was becoming increasingly self-focused, something I think all of us face every day. We are increasingly becoming increasingly self-focused. And Paul justifies this command by connecting this command with deep theological truths. Truths that we dare not miss. And these truths, they lead us right to Christmas and beyond. So walk with me as we we look. We see, we saw even two weeks ago, the first truth in which he anchors this in. Why should we pray for all people? 
Why should we pray for I mean, every kind of person out there? Why should our prayers not be restricted to those who are just like us, who believe like us, who look like us and talk like us and think like us? Why should we be concerned with the welfare of every single kind of person, of every person out there? Why? Verse 3 and 4. For this is good and acceptable. It's good and pleasing in the sight of God. You want to please the Lord? This is what we ought to do. But more than that, why is it pleasing to, the, to God our Savior? Because he desires, verse 4, all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, this, is a, this is a stunning truth. If you have been a Christian for any length of time, and even if you are not a Christian, this may seem ordinary. Yeah, yeah. God, God loves us all. God loves us all. Nothing to see here. Let's move on. I think that's, that's our, our normal reaction to a statement like this. Well, of course God loves me. Uh, he loves everybody. Of course God loves me. It's his job, right? But friend, nothing could be further from the truth. That, that this statement is, is here and is true is stunning. It is shocking. If you have ever, maybe at this time of year, you go out with someone, you're out with friends, or you're going out, and um, as you're walking through the mall or you're walking through the store, you see someone who is incredibly ugly, right? And they're walking with someone, clearly married, holding hands with someone who is beautiful, someone who is handsome. And you're thinking... How did that happen? Perhaps you are more sanctified than I am and have never thought those things. But here, you, you see this disjointed. How, how does that person and this, how do they get together? Perhaps you feel that that's the case with you and your spouse. N- not that, why did I ever marry him or why did I ever marry her? Sometimes I'm convinced my wife is thinking that way, and for good reason. But the other way, you think, wow, I can't believe I got to marry this person. That she said yes, that he asked me. Friend, we come to God as broken sinners. Whatever gap we may perceive between two people and by appearances, the gap between us and God is infinitely greater. It is infinitely greater. In every way, we we fall short of what he has called us to be and to do. We have fallen short of the glory of God. We have fallen short of what he has made us to be. We have fallen short in our minds, in our thinking, in our emotions, in our actions, in our desires, in our motives. But there is nothing Paul is able to say, the Apostle Paul is able to say with all honesty, he knows that there is nothing good that exists in his flesh. He feels the weight of that. And that is the only appropriate context where this verse can have its true effect on us. That God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 
Why? I'm sure you can think of particular people that you would not wish this on. But the Lord's heart is immensely great. This, this in one level, is picturing the, the general saving stance of God toward the world that we see over and over and over again throughout the Scriptures. For God so loved the world. Not, and John uses that word world not as a neutral place or as a big place, but as a terrible place. The place where Christ, the Redeemer, has come into the world and the world knew him not. It did not want to know him. He came to his own and his, and his own received him not. Isaiah 45, 21 to 22. There is no God, other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other Isaiah 53, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Ezekiel 18, in fact, multiple places in Ezekiel, we read these words, for I have no pleasure, the Lord says, in the death of the wicked. So turn to me and live. This is God's saving stance toward a world that has in every way rebelled against him. And this is, this is unthinkable from a human standpoint. And yet this is, this is also God's determination to save all kinds of people. Just as we are to pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. This is all kinds of people. God is going to save people from every kind, from every nationality, from every class, from every tongue. That is, God's desire isn't limited to a certain people group. It is extended to every kind of person. That is, the love of God is not exclusive to some earthbound group of people, it is and it includes every nationality, every tongue, every class, every age group. All according to his eternal purpose and will. But this, this raises a question, how, how can God desire this? You see, in the ancient world where most religions in the ancient world, were, they believed in many gods. Some of them were pantheistic. That is, they believed that God was in everything and everything was a part of God. And, and in that case, God is not a personal being. He has no will, no desire for anything. And so in that sense, that would not fit with this. That makes no sense here. But more than this, in a, in a polytheistic world, that is a world that believes in many gods. In, and in some religions today, it is an, an infinite number of gods. There are gods for everything and, and over everything. In that type of world, this kind of thinking that there is a God who desires a salvation, the good of all people, that's incomprehensible. Because in the ancient world, when you have pantheon of gods, what you end up having is a god who is over, or a set of gods who are over a a certain people group, a certain city, a certain region. They have their people, and a different set of god has their their people. And so when different city-states and different uh, 
different regions would go to war with one another. It was not just political. It was just not economic. It was also religious. They would, each side would make sacrifices to their God to make sure that their God was all the way on their side so that they could defeat the other God and thus show that their God was supreme and more powerful and gain more wealth and influence for their deity. But that deity, their deity, did not express desire to do good to all other people. But Paul tells us how we can have one God who in such a way desires the salvation for all. He says in verse 5, for there is one God. That is, we do not believe in, in many gods. We believe in one God. And this teaching of Scripture is absolutely revolutionary. That there is one creator of all things. And one, this one creator, he has created all people. He is one ruler who providentially sustains and guides everything. The one true God is not a a lowercase God of a particular people group or nationality or city or country or religion. The one true God cares for all that he has made. And he loves all. He desires with a general saving love that all will come to him. And friends, we will all, each of us, answer to this one God. If he has indeed made everything, then we will answer to him. We will give an account for every thought, for every word, for every action, for every motive of the heart, for every desire. We will give an account to him. And it raises the problem, how will we get on before this holy, good, just God? If he is going to hold us to account, what hope do we have? Paul goes on, not only is there one God, there is one God over all, there is one mediator for all. There is one mediator for all. And we see that Jesus is that mediator between God and man. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. A mediator is someone who stands between two rival groups to help reconcile them, to help reconcile their problems. That is the role and the goal of the mediator. And a mediator must He must equally represent both groups. That is, a mediator can't be particularly biased towards one group and be a good mediator. But there is one mediator that God has given. And this is not just the mediator between God and man. This is an exclusive mediator. There is one God and there is one mediator. That's an an exclusive statement. And it rubs the world the wrong way. Many people in the world will view that there are are many ways to God. Many religions, many spiritualities. We're all just ascending to God as if he is on a mountain. Whichever path we take, it's good. As long as we get there, he'll accept us. 
It doesn't matter how we worship. It doesn't matter how we live. We're just all finding our way to God. Each of us ascending the mountain to him in the way that best fits us. But I want you to understand, this can't be true. I mean, on, on, one, on one level, it insults everybody who holds to any belief whatsoever. It doesn't take any of the beliefs that we have uh, seriously. How can you rationally argue that the, that the contradicting faiths of Hinduism and Judaism and Christianity and Islam and every other ism and religion in the world and atheism, how, how can you argue that we're all equal and we're all going to the same God when we can't even agree that there is a God or, how to, or what he is like or what, or what he says or what, what we need to do to get to him or if we even need to get to him? Like we, don't, we agree on nothing. And yet you're going to tell us that really what we all believe is really just the same? That's nothing less than insulting. That's nothing less than insulting. More than that, it's, it's arrogant, isn't it? It's, it's arrogant. What it claims is that every world religion and all of these people in the world, they sincerely hold those beliefs. And they're doing the best that they can in whatever religion they are holding to. But this person here, they know that all of those beliefs and all of those particularities don't really matter because all of those beliefs are just ascending to one main God and begin, to begin with. We're all going to get there. Well, where did you get that information? Who told you that? On what authority do you make such an authoritative claim? Did you see how absolutely arrogant that is? We are assuming that we, that that person is assuming that they have omniscience about how all of this works out without offering the slightest bit of proof for it. More than this, it's irrational and self-contradictory. Each of these beliefs disagree with one another on almost every front, and yet we are going to claim that these beliefs which contradict one another themselves are all headed to the same place. It is rationally the dumbest thing you could believe. Some people take a different view. They say, yes, yes, Jesus is the one mediator, the one savior, The one way, the one truth, the one life. Yes, yes, yes. But Jesus saves different people in different ways. He's the one who saves us no matter what we believe, no matter where we are, no matter how we live. Do you see how this also fails in the same way? Even as they they want to hold up what... that they respect what Jesus is as the only Savior... They, they ignore everything he says and does. And once again, it claims to have the answer that Jesus himself, whom they claim to revere, that Jesus himself doesn't provide. Friends, what we have in this statement is Paul is tightly packing up serious, significant truth It's as if he's going on a long trip and he's taking some massive big truths and he's packing a suitcase and 
And he's doing that, that vacuum thing where you suck all the air out of the clothes and you put them in the plastic bags. You, you suck the, and you can like fit three times as many more. He is doing that with this truth. He is loading this passage with truth. There is one God and there is only one mediator. And then he says, not only is there this mediator, Jesus Christ, not only is there one mediator, an exclusive mediator, but you see it is a human mediator. The man Christ Jesus. Certainly this mediator is himself God. God our Savior, we read in verse 3. But this mediator who has come is not only God, it is also man. He is the man Christ Jesus. That is, he is fully and truly able to represent all of us. And this is what brings us right to Christmas. You see, for for Christ to represent us before God, he must not only be God, he must be one of us. And what Christmas reminds us of is the truth that our God came and he was born and he took on himself humanity, true humanity. Born as a baby. The omnipotent one became helpless. He who was self-sufficient needed to be fed. Needed to be held. Needed to be changed and cared for. The one who knew all things had to learn. He became in every way as you and I are so that we may come to God so that he may reconcile us to God. And how does he reconcile this us to God as the mediator? By a substitutionary sacrifice. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. Who gave himself a ransom for all. He's picking up here, I believe, on what Jesus says in the Gospel of Mark, which is recorded in the Gospel of Mark, where Christ tells us that he came not to, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Paul is picking up on that here, and he is calling us to see what Christ has done. And that word for is immensely important. It is not... It is the word uh, that is particularly used to describe this, this idea of substitute. That is, he is our substitute, our, our sacrifice in our place. We have sinned against the holy God, him who is righteous and justice and just, and we will give an account to him, and yet he in his mercy has sent his son, and his son having come to take on our humanity has come to rescue sinners by purchasing us with his own blood. Not with gold or money, but by himself. Gave himself as a ransom for all. We sing this truth in many of our songs, but perhaps none so clearly than when we sing Man of Sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came 
ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. And Christians, brothers and sisters, this is what God has done for us. This is what God has done in sending his Son. Christmas is not just about Christmas. Christmas is about the cross. The coming of Christ we celebrate because of what Christ achieves at the end of his life. And Christians have interpreted this verse in a variety of ways over the centuries. Universalists have looked at this passage and they have said, okay, Christ has died for every person individually. He has paid for all of their sin. and And since he has paid for all of their sin without exception... All people, without exception, will one day be saved. But this ignores huge swaths of Scripture. It just doesn't fit with what the Bible teaches. Two other passages or two other lines of thinking are are well within the framework of, of biblical Christianity. That is, Christians have held them. One view is that of a general atonement, that Christ has died in the place of all sinners. Without exception, it is paid for all sins. The only reason that some will find themselves in heaven and others won't is because they have trusted in Christ, whereas others have not. Another view is that of definite atonement, that Christ has his death on the cross is sufficient for all people. But it is efficient, it is effective to save only those whom, we might say, those who believe or those whom God has chosen before the foundation of the world. That Christ has died for all kinds of people. That Christ is, Christ's death is, while it is sufficient for all people, it is effective only for those for whom he has died. It is, he has died for all people without distinction, not without exception. And these two views are, are hotly debated amongst faithful, Bible-believing Christians. They have been, and we're not going to solve that problem this morning. But if you're interested in the correct answer, you can see me after the service, and I'd love to share that with you. What we have here, brothers and sisters, is this glorious truth. And we cannot, we cannot mitigate, we cannot back off of. But here is the heart of God, worn on his sleeve, so to speak. He desires genuinely from his heart desires all to be saved. And he has sent his son into the world as a ransom. And friend, if you are here this morning and are not sure how you can be right with God, if you are not sure if you are right with God, friend, let me urge you Look to Christ. You can this very morning find hope in him that his payment is sufficient, more than sufficient for you. His death on the cross will truly, absolutely save all who trust in him. All who turn from living their own way and seek and savor him above all. There is one more step that Paul takes here. 
It is not just creation with one God. Not just the incarnation and salvation with Christ. But then he takes us to world missions and the spread of all the gospel, the one message that exists for all. Follow along with me as I read verses 5 to 7. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. And to testify him publicly in due time, Paul says, this is what I was appointed a preacher and an apostle for. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. So clearly there was some, there was some people and there were some in Ephesus, who were denying whether Paul was truly an apostle of the Lord. So apostle makes a quick defense. I am not lying. I was set aside by Christ to do this. A teacher of the Gentiles, that is a teacher of all people, in faith and truth. What Paul is wanting us to see is because, because there is one God, because there is one mediator, and there is one way of salvation that Christ has provided, It is upon us to go. It is upon us to declare. This is a message to be testified in due time. This takes us from creation to Christmas to the cross to Pentecost and world missions. That this is something, this is a message, brothers and sisters, we declare not, not only here at church, not only to ourselves, but, but to those around us. We have neighbors, we have friends, we have coworkers, we have family members. The Lord brings people into our lives, and as we are able with urgency, let us testify to the provision of salvation that is found only in Jesus. Before the Revolutionary War in colonial America, there was a young man, teenager, by the name of David Brainerd, who as a young teenage man grew to love the Lord, wanted to give his life for him, trained and studied and then would go to a people group that in his time was overlooked, dismissed, looked down upon. He went to the Indians, had a heart for them, gave his life eventually to serve and to minister to them. He would die at the age of 29. He literally burned himself out, exhausted himself. Yet despite weakness and sickness, He made every effort to take the message of the Son of God who came, who lived, who died for sinners and rose again to these outcast peoples. Sickness and weakness constantly haunted him. And in one journal entry, he writes, I love to live on the brink of eternity. And to live on the brink of eternity, he did. He died not too much later, Before he died, he wrote these words. All my desire, all my desire was the conversion of the heathen. I cared not where or how I lived or what hardships I went through so that I could but gain souls to Christ. I declare, now I am dying. I would not have spent my life otherwise, not even for the whole world. 
Brothers and sisters, this young man understood the value of things eternally. That we can so easily forget in our highly commercialized age. He saw the souls of these around him as of infinite worth. He burned hot and fast for Christ, giving himself for eternity. Friends, this Christmas, let our words and our actions point others to Jesus. For there is one God. For there is one mediator, the man Christ Jesus. There is one Savior. Let us look and point others to him. Father in heaven, you have been so enormously generous to us. When we reflect on our own lives, we see countless ways we have fallen short. And we know, O Lord, that you who know all things, sees all things, where nothing is hidden from your sight. Whatever evaluation we have of ourselves does not come close to what you see. And yet, O Lord, despite all that, yet you have loved us with an everlasting love. Yet you have loved and sent your Son into the world to redeem sinners such as us. O Lord, I pray that even as we celebrate Christmas, that we we would look and rejoice in our Savior afresh, be all the more determined to point others to him and his sufficient, saving, glorious sacrifice. Oh God, we need you. We need you to do this work in us. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.